0: Morning. Come too far to look back. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel according to St. John chapter 8. Gospel according to St. John chapter 8. This is perhaps one of the most familiar stories of the Bible that we're not sure belongs in the Bible. Well, let me explain that. There's a lot of older manuscripts that don't have this story in it. And uh, there is some debate among scholars whether John uh, actually included uh, this story in his original gospel. However, somehow it, found its way in, and I'm glad it did, because I believe it's true, and I believe that, there, that God preserved it for a reason and a purpose, and so I'm not one of those that feels like, you know, you got to go to the oldest manuscripts and figure out just what it said and, and, and argue about all those things. I, I believe that God preserved the Word that He wanted us to have. I believe in God's sovereignty and His power. And so that's why I'm preaching it this morning, is, is, is because I believe it is God's Word. And uh, I'll, let, I'll let the smart people debate and argue over it. And, uh, and I'll just preach God's Word as I understand it. I invite you to stand with me for, for the reading of the Scripture this morning. You know the story. Begin reading in verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. And when they continued asking him, he lifted up, Himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Father, thank you for preserving this story for us. Thank you for the lessons in it, the reminders. Father, we ask this morning that you would once again hide us behind the shadow of the cross. May we preach not our own thoughts and our own ideas, but may we preach only what you would have us to say. May you be glorified and honored in it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. On March 22nd, 1824, in the state of Indiana... There was a terrible massacre of nine Native Americans. Another one was injured. Including among them were women and children. And those who were guilty of that massacre, several of them had been executed. And on June the 3rd, 1825, John Bridge, Jr., was set to be executed for his role in the massacre. That day there was, of course, the town had gathered. And early in the day, as they were there, John Bridge, Jr. watched as John Bridge, Sr. and, his, and John, Jr.'s uncle were hanged for their role. I'm not sure altogether why, but there was a great hope that the governor would pardon John Bridge Jr. I don't know if it was because of his age or if he had a minor role or or just exactly what. But they kind of waited around for John Bridge Jr.'s execution. But they didn't receive any word from the governor. And so they had a sermon preached. I don't know what it'd be like to listen to your last sermon. The sermon was preached. Finally amen was said. John was led to the noose. They had him there his hands tied behind his back. The rope lowered around his neck. And all they were waiting for was for the signal to be made and the lever to be pulled and the floor would drop out. And as they waited for that signal, there was a roar from the back of the crowd. And in came a man on horseback. The man made his way through the crowd and he said to John, he said, do you know whose presence you stand? And the man shook his head No. He said, according to the law, there are only two powers that have the ability to save you from being hanged by your neck until you're dead, dead, dead. The first is the great God of the universe, and the second is J. Brown Ray, governor of the state of Indiana, and the latter is who stands before you right now. Here's your pardon. You will not be hanged today, son. I don't know what that would have been like to be John Bridge Jr. that day. To go from having to watch your father and uncle be hanged knowing that in a few short hours you would be following to be hoping for pardon but not being sure of it and then to receive it. What we do know is that John used his pardon well. He went and he opened a dry goods store and died 55 years later. But I think about what it had to be to have that noose lowered around your neck and how terrifying that has to be. In our story, we have a woman who's going through that same fear. She's been ripped from an illicit relationship, caught in the very act. Some have speculated that she was half-dressed or maybe not even dressed at all. We're not sure. I think probably decorum would have required the Pharisees, because they wouldn't. I mean, they wouldn't even look at a woman who was fully dressed. I, I kind of have the suspicion that they they threw clothes at her and told her to get dressed. They dragged her to the temple. How humiliating! She's thrown down at the feet of a teacher. And this is the proclamation of her sin to all that are there. I don't know why she was in the relationship she was in, I don't know what she was doing. But this we know she was guilty. And I think some preachers will would preach and I think sometimes when we read it we kind of feel sorry for her. And I think also there's there might be some who are saying, well, boy, does she deserve it. And we're kind of... I think it's kind of hard for us to even to know how to feel about this story. Some are saying, you know, she deserves, the, the Old Testament says that well, she deserves. And, and we're just kind of in that difficult place of what would we do if we were in Jesus' shoes. But before we get too far there, I, you know, one of the things that I like to do when I'm reading a, a passage of Scripture, especially a, a narrative, a story from Scripture, one of the things I like to do is I like to step in to the role of the different characters. I like to step into the role of the woman, and and I've kind of done that this this morning and tried to step into what it would be like for my shame and my sin to be made public, to know that death is is what I deserve. I think we could step into Jesus' role in saying, how would we deal with such a situation? But this morning, I think that it might be beneficial for us to step into the Pharisees' sandals this morning. And the reason why I suggest that it benefit us to do so is because of the three groups, Jesus, the woman, and the Pharisees, those three characters, it's probably easiest for us to be Pharisees. It's probably easiest for us to be the one who makes those decisions and gets into, the, into those places of... I don't want to say it this morning. Where we get to the place where we are so concerned about rules that we forget about people. That's really easy for us to do. Now you know that I'm not against rules. I'm not against God's Word. But I think there's a real danger... For us who want to be holy and to live holy. For us to fall into the trap of the Pharisees. Because do you know the reasons the Pharisees ever started was because they wanted to be holy in a time when Israel was being unholy. When Israel was not serving God the way they should be. When Israel was falling short of what God had commanded, the Pharisees started so that they could be a holy organization in the midst of worldliness in the church. Doesn't that sound like us? Doesn't that sound so much like us? The reason that we exist is because the the mother churches, we go back to Catholicism, they left holiness and so then the Protestants started. And we have uh, the Methodists. But what have the Methodists done? They've, they've left holiness in so many ways. And we can just follow our history until we finally get to us. And what do we see? We see this progression of leaving Holiness. And there's a remnant of us that still believe that following God's word and pleasing Him with our lifestyle and with careful living is important. And that's why the Pharisees were started. For the same reasons that we are here. The Pharisees were not inherently wrong. They're not inherently evil. Their purpose was a good purpose. But where the Pharisees messed up is when they started putting more value on their rules than they did on the people that they were called to serve. Let's look at the story a little bit from the Pharisees' perspective. Right in the very first part, you, uh, we, get the, uh, we see an interruption. Jesus is in the temple teaching. We don't even get to find out what Jesus is teaching. He's, he's been at the Mount of Olives, and it said in verse 1, probably praying because that's where he seemed to go and pray. So he's come down off the mountain after having been with the Father and here the world's best preacher in all of history is sitting in the temple teaching and we don't even get to find out what Jesus is teaching about because in comes these Pharisees with this woman interrupting the whole thing because what they've got to say is more important than what Jesus has to say. And that is the first clue that we might be in danger of becoming a Pharisees is when we, what we have to say is more important than what others have to say, including God. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is, is, is instructing the people. They've come to hear Jesus. They didn't come to hear the Pharisees. They didn't come to hear what they had to say. But here the Pharisees are are there and they're making a demand. And they're saying, we need to be heard first. You know what amazes me? is Jesus lets them talk. You know, I think some of us, we would have said, now listen here, Pharisees. We're the teacher here. These people are gathered to hear me. I'll be happy to talk to you after the sermon. I think that's how I would prefer to deal with it and deal with it privately afterwards. If someone came in and tried to interrupt the service, it's probably how I would handle it. That's not how Jesus handles it. Jesus Jesus just lets them talk. He gives them first place. And you know what I wonder? I wonder if we have failed to learn from the pastor in that we get so caught up in what we think and what we want to say that we make sure that our opinion is heard first. I I've said it often, we don't listen to understand. We often listen so that we can refute, so we can respond. We don't listen so that we can hear what the other person has to say. But we have, co- a Pharisee believes that they are right and they are the voice of God on earth. It's a dangerous thing to believe you are right. It's a dangerous thing to believe that you're right. That you cannot be wrong. Because as soon as you are it, right, it cannot be wrong. It means that you cannot be taught anything. There are some things that we know are right. There are some things that are just the way they are, and we know that, what God's Word says about it, and we're not going to waver, we're not going to change on them. But we have to even be careful with those. That we are just absolutely careful that we can still learn from others who may know, and from the Holy Spirit who does know. When they come in there, they're not wanting to be taught. They're not there to learn. They're not there to to be uh, shown the ways of God. They are there because they are right. She is guilty. We have witnesses. And the law, God's word says that she is to die, we have all that is needed to perform an execution. And this morning, I want to tell you something. The Pharisees were right. They were right. That's not what we wanted to hear this morning. Not what you expected me to say. They were right, but they didn't have complete knowledge. And they really didn't care about her, and they didn't care about all those people who were listening and watching, and they didn't care about Jesus. All they cared about themselves. This was a trap. All this was was a trap because they knew that Jesus had one of two options. Either one, he could say, you're right, she should be executed. That's what God's law says. And so they would go to the Roman authorities and say, Jesus is going through and he's undermining your power and your ability to execute. Because remember, they couldn't execute Jesus. They had to go to Pilate. They had to go to the Roman authorities. The Jews did not have any authority to execute anybody. If Jesus, on the other hand, would say, Rome doesn't permit us to execute criminals... Then they have him because everybody hates the Romans and they're going to spread to everyone that he's an agent of Rome. They don't care about this woman. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about anybody but their own political influence and power. What a dangerous thing to be right. Pharisees often are right, but they still have things to learn. Pastor was sharing about a board member that he had, at some point in his life this board member had been terribly burned, a great percentage of his body. So much so that the doctors and nurses said they did not think that he was going to live. Nobody that had ever been through that hospital had been burned with as much as he had been burned had ever survived. But he survived. And he believed that God saved him for a purpose and that purpose was to do great things in the church. Well, so far it sounds good. But this is, this is where he got his wires crossed. He believed that since God saved him from certain death, that it meant that every opinion he had was the way the church was supposed to go because God had preserved him to tell the church how to do with things. And if you didn't do it his way, you weren't doing it God's way. I have a headache just telling you that. you know there can be a right way to do things and there can be a wrong way to do things and there can be a God's way to do things and we better be careful that we're doing things God's way and that we're in tune with him and that we're willing to be teachable The Pharisees weren't teachable, they were interrupting the teacher. They were interrupting the teacher. In fact, they even say so when they say master. The Greek word there could could mean teacher or or great teacher. They're basically saying to, to him, great teacher? We've got a question for you. What do we do with this situation? And it isn't about learning, it's about hurting. I believe the child of God never des- desires the hurt of another person. Now, does that mean that we can't stand for justice and and that no, I'm not saying that. I, there, we need justice. Justice is part of God's nature, just as love and holiness are part of his nature too. But we should never celebrate and we should never be excited about justice. I forget exactly which bomber it was, but I remember we were in a holiness church and there had been a bombing... People, of course, had died in the building, and this this couple, this this especially this 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 one lady, very vocal. Remember, she was saying in Sunday school, "They ought to take and tie them up in a building and set bombs and blow them up just like they did to others." And I was horrified. It's not justice; that's revenge. It's an eye for an eye. It's not what God's called us to. I'm not saying that they don't deserve to to face judgment. I'm not saying they don't deserve to face uh, life in prison or even uh, executed for their crime. But oh, that we would not get to the place where we relish in the hurt and the death of others. Which should bring us no joy, when we hear, criminals been executed. It should. And it should bring us no joy when others have to suffer, even when it's their own fault. An interruption, because what they had to say was more important than what Jesus had to say. Then we notice there's an insistence. Jesus, tell us what we're supposed to do with this situation. Solve our problem. Do it our way. Because no matter what you say, we're we're, we're going to use it against you. We're going to hurt you. Here's our insistence. We want her to be punished. But what do you say? What do you say? I have a question this morning. How do you feel when someone that in the church, someone who's professed to be saved, is caught in sin? How does that make you feel? I think for the Pharisees, they would gloat over it. I think they got joy out of that. Or maybe... Or maybe at least, uh, uh, all right. Let's throw the book at them. Let's hammer them. Let's, let's, let's. You know, let, what 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 can we do to, to make them suffer? They brought shame on the church. They brought they they've brought. Oh, we we. I mean, we've got to we just got to nail them. I remember I was in my first church. I'm twenty something years old. Don't know anything. I thought I knew a lot, but I didn't know very much. I'd been through Bible school. I thought I knew something. I didn't know anything. I had a member of our church who was embarrassing the church and the community with their sin. Well, that's exciting. And I had a carnal board member, and I'm not just saying that. They even admitted they were, they were carnal, and boy, were they. This carnal board member came up to me and said, You need to deal with this situation. It's like, all right, let me pray about it. At least I had enough sense to know that I didn't know what to do with that situation. <laughs> and as I went to prayer about it, God said, I'll take care of it. You just stay out of it. That colonel board member wasn't happy when I came back and said God said he'd take care of it. He wanted me to take away their membership, take, take away their ability to vote, Wanted me to do all these things. And God said, just let me handle it. You know we'd get in a whole lot less trouble if we just let the Holy Spirit deal with things Amen. instead of sticking our noses where they don't belong. Now I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place to say something. I'm not saying there isn't a time that, as your pastor, that I'll say, you know, I'm concerned about this in your life. I think that's a loving thing to do. I think you can be very loving and very compassionate when you do it. But if you get a thrill and a joy out of seeing other people stumble, or you get get ramped up to bring down judgment... You know, I find it interesting, Jesus would, go, uh, would say later, if, and I wanted to read more, but I didn't dare this morning, but he would go later on, if you go beyond this, in verse 12, if this, if this is, is all in the same time period, Jesus starts teaching again, and what happens? The Pharisees interrupt him again, and then Jesus finally says that I'm not the judge, he said, I judge no man. But if I judged, I would, I would judge righteously because my father and I judged together. I thought, wow. If w- some of us could just get a hold of that. Jesus came not into the world to condemn the world. So why are we doing it? Well, I wish I would have gotten a little more amens on that, but that's All right. <laughs> Folks, we're supposed to be like Jesus, not like the Pharisees. Jesus didn't come around and start, start throwing stones at people, and he could have. He said he, he was without seeing cast the first stone. He could have picked up a stone and stoner. He had the moral right to do so on, on that statement alone. And how much less are we able to pick up a stone? So will we live above sin? Yeah, but you haven't always lived above sin. And if we opened up your closet and started pulling out the skeletons that are there, we might feel as ashamed as that woman did that day. Because I know that, as far as I'm concerned, there's some things that I, I don't want dragged out into public. And there's others here this morning that feel the same way. Thank God for His precious blood. Amen. It cleanses all unrighteousness. You know, I, we all know about Jimmy Baker. Jim Baker, he, he went to prison for five years. Maybe you think that was not long enough, I don't know. Jim Baker, as he was getting ready to be released, Franklin Graham said to him, he said, I want you to know, he says, when you get out of here, I'm going to take care of you. He says, we're going to set you up with a house and a car. We're going to get you a job. We're going to take care of you. And Jim Baker said to him, he said, you don't need that. You don't need that, my baggage. I don't, want to, I don't want to hurt your ministry. I don't want to hurt, hurt who you are. He said, I, he said I've, he says, you, you can't do that. And Graham said this. He said, you were my friend before you went to prison, and I want the world to know that you're still my friend. And anybody who has a problem with that, well, I'm just looking for a fight. I like it. He got in the halfway house. Ruth Graham called up the halfway house, got permission for him to be able to go to their church. He walks into church and it was packed. I wish that we had that problem this morning. We did last week. That was nice. He says he sat down. He said the Graham family took up two pews. Seemed like every aunt and uncle, everybody was there. He sat down. He said there was one spot left. And in comes Ruth Graham. And she sat down right beside him and said to the whole church, Jim Baker's my friend. He went home for the, uh, with them for dinner. She asked for his address. He pulled out an envelope. Prison, you weren't allowed to have a, a wallet. You were only allowed to have An envelope, and so he pulls out his envelope to get out his address, and she goes, don't you have a wallet? He goes, yeah, this is my wallet. For five years, it had been. He'd he'd been so brainwashed by the prison system that it it was just his wallet. She went into the bedroom, she came out, she goes, here's one of Franklin's, he doesn't need it, (laughs) you can have it. You know, we can, we can point fingers at how unholy and how uncareful that maybe other organizations and other churches are. But if there's a flaw that we have, is we don't follow the scripture, restore such a one. When someone falls from among us, we're pretty quick to shoot our wounded. And a lot of times they have, when they get back to the Lord, they have to go to a different kind of church because they're too embarrassed and too ashamed to come back to our churches. Oh, that they'd be, feel so much love, so much compassion from us that they couldn't go anywhere else. When We worked at the mission, we had a man that we'd, we'd worked with for years. He'd been an alcoholic, and he'd been clean and sober. But he fell, and he fell hard, as they usually do. They call it falling off the wagon. It's more like falling off a cliff. It's just as destructive, It was hard. As he reached rock bottom, and his life was a mess again, he said i wish i could come back to church but he says i'm too ashamed and i'm too embarrassed but the gospel center we had a motto we had it printed on everything We're the church of second chances that's why I, I think it's nice when a church has a motto just one thing that just that this is what defines our church and that's what we were we were sitting. And we were just a church of second chances. And we told people they were allowed more than two. We just said, you're welcome back. This is what we are all about. We're the church of second chances. We serve a God of second chances. And John's back in church. And he's doing well. You know, he fell again. fell again but now he's back in church again and I and I'm friends with him on Facebook and I think he's about 18 or 19 months sober celebrating that and he's thrilled and he's excited and he's doing doing well he's one of the main pillars of the church what I mean by that is he's the first one there he opens the doors he cleans it he's there every service but you know if John's history repeats itself John will probably fall again. As far as I if I remember John's story correctly the first time he ever had a sip of alcohol was in a, his baby bottle. It's all he's ever known. But John keeps getting second chances because it's a church that doesn't insist on judgment. I wish I could take that and just transport that attitude every single place. Every single place that calls themselves a church, whether it's holiness or otherwise, That we're just a place where you get all the chances you need to make it. Because all that matters is that you make it. There's an interruption. There's an insistence, but then finally, or not finally, i got two more points. Um, An inscription. Jesus started, he stoops down and he starts writing in the sand. You know, there's nowhere else in scripture where Jesus writes anything. Scholars say at least it proves that Jesus could read and write. I think it was obvious that he could read it. We read from the scroll. There's others that seems to indicate that he could. But Jesus didn't leave any of his own writings. We don't have the gospel according to Jesus anywhere. The only time we find that he writes, he writes in the dust. Do you know what he wrote? It's none of your business what he wrote. If it was your business what he wrote, then John would have told us or the Holy Spirit would have instructed John to do it. There's so many people arguing and fussing about what Jesus wrote that day. And it's just simple. If I was writing my commentary, I would just write, it's none of your business what Jesus wrote. But here's what strikes me as I, as I was thinking about this, is the f- same finger that's scribbling in the sand wrote on stone on Mount Sinai. And the same finger that's scribbling in the sand wrote on a wall in Babylon. And as I was thinking about it, we find three times in Scripture where God's finger writes... Interesting that it's his finger, he never uses a pen. Three times that God writes with his finger. The first time he writes the Ten Commandments, because sin wrecks our lives. It's an act of love. God says, you know, I want to set aside ten rules, ten, ten commandments, so that These things will not wreck your lives. God did not just set these rules up because he likes to make up rules. If you break these things, it wrecks your life. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. If you do these things, it brings hurt and difficulty. So God writes out these Ten Commandments an act of love. So that we would know the way to live. He then goes to Balthasar and, uh, and in Babylon and he writes out, and what does he write? He writes judgment. You're saying, wait a minute, preacher. Did, wait, we're, we're, I thought you said judgment was for Pharisees and, and that was a problem. Do you know? that God would not have had to give the warning of judgment, I believe it was an opportunity to repent. And when God's word tells us of judgment, I don't believe it's God's anger kindled into the place where he's all excited and he's, whew, he can't wait to just bring down judgment. But it's a warning. It's a, it's a statement of this is going to happen. Be careful. And then we have this time when God's finger is writing in the sand. And I don't know what he wrote. Something that he wrote the sins of those Pharisees. Maybe he just started writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he just scribbled and not, it was nothing. Maybe it wasn't even words. Maybe he was drawing pictures. I don't know what he was writing. Doesn't matter. But what we know that came from this was forgiveness. They were acts of love. All three times that God's finger writes, acts of love. And may we always, always operate from a position of love. I need to hurry, I see that it's getting time to eat and everybody's hungry. Finally there's an instruction. Go and sin no more. You know there's one danger about preaching about Pharisees is that sometimes we can fall in the ditch on the other side of the road. There are people that are always, anytime you take a stand against sin, you're the moral police. You're a Pharisee. You're, you're, you're a, you have no right to, to say what you're saying. Jesus said, judge not. He said, if, you be, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. You don't have any ability. You don't have no power. You should not be saying what you're saying. Folks, that's not right at all either. If you read through the Old Testament, prophets, they're all bringing judgment. But it breaks their hearts. Reminds me of the fellow who had seen his his buddy and he he hadn't seen him in a while. And He said, "Uh, you know, we got a new preacher. He goes, oh, yeah, what happened to uh, to your old preacher? He says, well, we voted him out. Well, why'd you vote him out? Well, he kept telling us that we were going to hell. Well, he said, did you get a new one? He says, yeah, we got a new one. Well, what does he do? Well, he tells us we're going to hell too. Well, what's the difference between the first preacher and the second preacher? He says, well, when the first one said it, it seemed like he kind of enjoyed telling us. The second one, it, it seems like it breaks his heart. You know, I, I, I think there's a, a lot of truth in that little story. You've heard preachers, they've thundered. It's almost like they're getting out some kind of sadistic pleasure as they dangle you over the pit of hell. And even good, saved, and sanctified people are running to the altar. It's like, you don't need to go to the altar. You're saved and sanctified. But they're running and going because and, maybe, just maybe, they've slipped up in some way and they didn't know it. And then there's other preachers that they'll preach... On hell, or they'll preach in God's judgment, and they'll do it in such a way that you know that He loves you and He cares about you, and He only just wants to help you. I hope I'm the latter and not the former. I guess there, you could be a preacher that would never tell people that they were wrong and that they were going to hell, but what a ter- what an unloving thing to do to just let people. Go in their sin. Not be warned. You see, there's a there's a there's a right way. The Pharisees that take joy and pleasure in judgment. Those that hate the moral police, they take joy and pleasure in their sin. But there's a right place to be, and that is that we take a stand against sin. But we do it lovingly and with a broken heart. With a broken heart. Where are we this morning? This story? Are we have we become the the Pharisees? Or we have taken. Where our opinion is the only one that matters, where judgment is brings us joy. Have we become the people that just we don't want anything, any truth. We just we just want to gleefully go our own way, and nobody tell us. You know the problem with both sides is neither one wants instruction. Neither side wants to learn. Or do we want to be careful? and loving, forgiving, and restoring. You know, it takes a lot more effort to do those things. It takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of disappointments. There'll be times that you're going to do your best and it's going to fail. The people are going to fail you. There, you're gonna, there's going to be times that you'll question whether it's worth it. It's the hardest road. But I believe it's the road that Jesus calls us all to take. It's the road that I believe Jesus wants us to take. I invite us to stand this morning. Father, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to take pride in my rule keeping. I don't want to compare myself to others and always be the best in my own mind. And Lord, I don't want to fall on the other side of the ditch. I don't want to, I don't want to just become ignorant and, uh, of, of your ways and of the truth. Lord, I want to be careful to To be obedient to your voice. And and I want to be careful to mind your word. Lord, I want to help others who stumble along the way. I want to be a safe person that people can talk to and say that they've fallen and they would like some help getting back up. And know that they wouldn't be condemned or mistreated. Lord, may it never be said of our church that we shoot our wounded, that, that, that we neglect those that are hurting, even the, uh, when it's their fault. I want to be like Jesus. May we be a church that's like Jesus. And when we stand before you to be judged and you judge perfectly and righteously, may we all be found perfect, not because of our own righteousness, but because of your precious blood and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these favors in your perfect name. Amen. You are dismissed. That's long-winded.